Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award-winning keynote speaker, and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. Have you ever met a really fun and funny and inspiring and smart guy? Well, today I'm bringing you that person. He is Joey Coleman. He's an award-winning speaker who works with organizations around the world to help improve company profits through remarkable experiences. We talk a lot about his best-selling book called Never Lose a Customer Again, in which he explains strategies and tactics for turning one-time purchasers into lifelong customers. He shares a lot of valuable tips today, and you're going to be able to use them at your workplace right away. Please take notes. There's so many gems here. And subscribe to my Doing CX Right podcast to continue getting updates on your favorite channel, Apple, Spotify, Amazon, and more. I appreciate if you leave me a review as I read every one and they mean so much. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, Joey Coleman. Welcome to the Doing CX Right Show. Oh, hello, Stacy. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And thanks to everybody who's listening in. I so appreciate your time. And uh, I trust and hope that you're going to have as much fun listening into this conversation as I know I'm going to have with Stacy. She is such a rock star. I'm a fan of the show and I'm truly honored to be here. So thanks for the invitation. Thank you. And there's no hoping. We just know. We're doers and we know it and we deliver. So on that note, I am sure everyone's going to know who you are. But just in case, please tell the audience, who are you? What do you do? Sure. My name is Joey Coleman and I teach organizations how to keep their customers and their employees. And the way I do that is by focusing on creating remarkable experiences, specifically in the first 100 days of the relationship. Because all the research shows that if you get the first 100 days right, you can have a customer for life. You can have an employee who's long-term engaged. They'll keep coming back for more if you lay a proper foundation at the beginning. So I do that teaching via keynote speeches, via workshops, via virtual presentations, via books, writing, speaking, podcast, uh, kind of the full gambit, any way that I can get out and try to share the message wherever I can and help organizations figure this stuff out internally is what I spend most of my days doing. Well, it's obvious why you're so good at what you do because your dynamic personality and energy, I mean, I feel it you know, through the microphone. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I figure we're, we're supposed to be having fun, right? Let's get in and bring a lot of energy and excitement to the table. And nine times out of 10, that solves for a lot of issues. A good attitude and a little bit of energy can push through a lot of negative customer experiences. Mm, so true. On the topic of fun, what is a fun fact that people might not know about you? Well, you know, we were kind of talking before we hit record about uh, the headphones I have on. For those of you, since you're listening, you can't see me. I have these kind of giant DJ headphones on uh, that makes it seem like I'm trying to recapture my youth in in a Vegas nightclub or something like that, (laughs) DJing. 
But what's interesting is I would be able to wear little AirPods and be more discreet like Stacy is doing, but my hair is a lot shorter than it used to be. And when I say used to be, I mean about a decade ago or so, my hair was longer than Stacy's. It was well down below my shoulders. It was actually at one point, it was beyond my shoulder blades. Twice I had it cut for locks for love. If you're familiar with that program where you can have your hair cut off and they make wigs out of it. I grew it out long enough to go through two separate cuttings of part of that program. Uh, And it was just a really interesting experience to have this perspective because when I when I grew my hair long, I found myself having conversations that I hadn't previously had. Uh, notably conversations with law enforcement and conversations with people who played in bands. So for some reason, I attracted a certain element when I had the longer hair. I want to dig into that for a minute because that is the perfect example of assumptions and bias and how much that happens both in the workplace with employees and even how we might approach a customer before we even start the dialogue, there's an assumption made that could be so wrong and make the experience completely different. It really can. And you know, it's interesting, Stacey, before I had my long hair, I was a criminal defense lawyer. So I grew up uh, practicing law or kind of my father was a criminal defense lawyer. So that was kind of the family business. I grew up working in his law firm. I went to law school straight out of college. I became a criminal defense lawyer. And so I spent a lot of time dealing with law enforcement as a an attorney representing my clients. Well, then when I grew my hair out longer, I started getting stopped more. I'd get stopped when I was driving my car for seemingly no reason. I would get stopped walking down the street and asked, where are you going? What are you doing? And I'm thinking, I'm the same person just with longer hair. And you're right. I think some assumptions were being made based on the length of my hair. Now, I want I want to say, you know, for all of you listening, I realize that there are a lot of folks that are navigating through life, having conversations with law enforcement that are very challenging. And my experience as a middle-aged white male is very different than those experiences. I'm not trying to compare myself to that. But what I am saying is that it was an interesting insight for me as to how much bias and how many assumptions are made just based on how someone looks. In this case, based Mm -hmm. on a haircut. And I really look back on that time fondly because I feel like it gave me a little bit better understanding of what life could be like in a different scenario. What I mean by that is I'm a big student of travel and a big student of reading and learning and trying to experience other cultures and talk to people uh, from more diverse experiences and kind of increase my scope of understanding of the human condition because I think that helps when we're creating customer experiences. But rarely do I think we have the ability to actually step into the shoes of someone who's having a completely different perspective or a completely different experience than we are. And so I consider that to be kind of a fun time period in my life where I got that perspective in a very small dose, but something that I try to click back into with some regularity when I'm trying to develop you know, new products or new services or new communications for my clients where we're trying to get to audiences that may not look or sound or act like us, but are important to the growth of our organization. Mm. I just wrote an article about trends in 2022, and you're reminding me of something I wrote and just reinforced it, that CX leaders have the opportunity 
to really partner closely with the diversity, inclusion, equity leaders, which is a, a new role in a lot of brands. And we do have the chance to work together and bring that employee experience better from two different angles, but yet they are really married do you agree? Absolutely. Oh, oh, only only a thousand percent, Stacey. I only agree a thousand percent. And I agree, <laughs> you know, I think at the end of the day, what's fascinating about this is I know very few businesses that only sell to people of one gender, one race, one socioeconomic background, one education level, one geography. You know, we have a tendency as organizations to want as many people as possible to experience our brand offerings, whether that's our products or our services. And yet, lots of times, the people who are creating these products or services or designing the experiences around them only represent a very, very small subset of the potential users. And so I agree with you. When we think about diversity and equality and inclusion activities, it's not just, hey, is it possible to hire lots of employees who come from different backgrounds. That's an important piece of it, don't get me wrong. But what kind of conversations are we having at the genesis of a new product or rolling out a new service or thinking about a new marketplace or maybe even just running a contact center? You know, do we have people in the contact center that are representative of the type of customers we serve? Do we have people in our executive offices that are representative of the type of customers we serve? And if we don't, there is a natural disconnect around our ability to truly understand what the customer is going through and what the customer is experiencing. So I think there's a huge opportunity for collaboration and connection and working together to improve our own understanding of perspectives that may be different than the one we had before the mm. conversation started. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to dive into your first book, all around retention of customers. But before we do that, you have another book coming in 2022. And I think maybe it's a good place to start. Just a little preview from where we were just talking about employee experiences. Can you share anything, uh, a preview to the movie here? I can. It's, it's, it's definitely a work in progress, Stacey. So my first book was called Never Lose a Customer Again. And it was all about how do you create the kind of remarkable experiences that keep your customers coming back for more. My next book, which is probably going to come out towards the beginning of 2023, is going to be called Never Lose an Employee Again. And some people might think that this book was written in response to the great resignation and what we're seeing around employees leaving and so many companies struggling with staffing and employment issues. It was actually the process of writing this book began long before that. And it began when several of my clients who had implemented my first 100 days methodology from the Never Lose a Customer Again book decided on their own to apply it internally to apply the same eight phases of the customer journey to the employee journey, to apply the same six tools I talk about, about how to create remarkable customer experiences, to apply those same tools internally to their employees. And to be honest, for years, Stacey, I've seen customer experience and employee experiences being two sides of the same coin. Mm. 
As you improve the customer experience, you naturally improve the employee experience. As you, you know, create negative employee interactions, those necessarily and actively spill over into negative customer interactions. So to me, I'm really trying to envision these books as a com- as kind of a companion set that you can apply the same process and the same framework internally and externally and get the same results of increased retention, increased engagement, increased profits, and deeper, more personal and emotionally connected relationships that will stand the test of time. Hmm. So you talk about employee engagement and experience. Now, customer experience leaders own that because you can't get a great customer experience without the employee feeling valued and appreciated. Now, who owns that though? You have human resource departments and you have the customer experience departments. And in many companies, they don't, they're separate organizations. So what do you say to companies and, and people listening Where's the ownership lie and what have you seen work? Yeah, well, let's start with what I have seen not work. So I grew up in a farming community in Northwestern Iowa. And anybody who's been to a farm or driven through farm country has seen these giant grain silos, right? Where farmers (laughs) store their crops after harvest. Silos are beautiful and useful and valuable on a farm. They are horrible destructive, and a real pain in an organization. And I think the same scenario we have around employee experience exists over on the customer experience side of the house. You know, I talk to people, organizations, and they say, well, our chief customer officer oversees customer experience. But then they have a chief marketing officer who's fighting for the same budgets. And then a chief sales officer who's kind of contradicting the things the marketing officer and the experience officer are doing. And there's a lot of inner struggle and inner strife and kind of jockeying and positioning for fiefdoms. I'm a big believer that customer experience needs to be owned by one person, but it also needs to be owned by everyone in the organization. Because every employee interacts with a customer either actively or passively. What I mean by that is either they're having frontline interactions with a customer or even somebody who's in accounting that may never talk to a customer, they're designing the invoice that the customer is going to see. And so there's a passive interaction with the customer. In the same way that we want everybody to have the customer facing forward when it comes to our uh, internal operations on the customer side, we want to have the employee as our focal point when we think about our internal operations. And it's not enough for the head of HR or the head of diversity and inclusion and equality to be the only ones thinking about the employee experience. The head of marketing has to think about that. The head of sales has to think about that. The head of operations has to think about that. The CEO has to think about that. The frontline employees working in the call center or working in the recep- as the receptionist or you know a, a junior employee that just started five minutes ago or the intern, they all need to be collaborating to create the best possible employee experience because that's the only way I believe that you can create a place where people are eager to go spend their time. And if there's anything mm-hmm. we've learned in the last 18 months is it's not enough to provide a paycheck. Hmm. It's not enough to say, but we're paying you. So you should want to come here. 
that may have worked. I would posit it never worked that well, but it worked better 50 years ago than it works today. And it's not going to go back to that way anytime soon. That's the harsh truth. Sorry, listeners. I hate to be the one who has the spoiler alert, who kind of, you know, speaks it in a way that it maybe doesn't feel good in our stomachs, but we're never going back to the way it was. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's an opportunity, but it's going to require some growth. It's going to require some restructuring. It's going to require some change and some recognition of the role the employee plays in an organization, as opposed to thinking of the employee as a cog in the organization, which I think a lot of organizations are guilty of having done in recent history. Yes, and leadership has to change. Yes. Leadership skills. I mean, the saying, you know, people leave their bosses most often. There's some truth to that. Yeah, the, the research shows it. The research shows, and it's been proven time and time again in organizations globally around the world. This isn't just a United States problem. This isn't just a white collar or blue collar jobs or a middle management or a frontline employee job or a C-suite job. No, people want to work with people they like. That should not be a newsflash. That should not be a newsflash to anyone listening because I'd be willing to bet you like to work with people you like. And when I ask anybody who's listening, think of the people you work with on a daily basis, which ones do you like? If you immediately start thinking of names, chances are you're working at an employee-centric organization. If you immediately start going, well, no, not that one. No, I can't stand working with him. Oh, geez, she's, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, that other department. I don't even want to talk to that department. If those are the thoughts coming up in your mind, my gut instinct is you are not an employee-centric organization, nor are you, by the way, a uh, customer-centric organization, right? Mm -hmm. So I think there's huge possibility and huge opportunity for those type of changes to happen. And I agree with you, it has to come from a place of leadership and it has to be more than lip service. This can't just be, hey, I read a book that says we should care about our employees more. I heard Joey Coleman's speech and he says, you know, if we want to never lose an employee again, we've got to give a darn about him. It's like, no, this should be implicit in your existence as a human. And if it's not implicit in your existence as a human, go spend some time looking in the mirror. Go spend some time sitting in nature. Go spend some time really thinking about how you want to show up on the planet. Because if you don't think humans are an important piece of this puzzle, Oh my goodness, I, we, we, we got to have a completely different kind of conversation and we got to start at scratch. We got to go to the foundation here and build up from there. So I don't want to detour this conversation too much, but when you said about the human, which is absolutely everything, I was on a podcast and an individual said, data is the answer, what is the question? And I thought it was very interesting. We had a very fun debate, but I don't believe data is the answer to everything. It's absolutely how you do get the C-suite to invest and to, you know, get buy-in, but it is not the entire equation. So what's your, what's your answer to that statement? Well, I, I don't think any one thing is everything. I don't think any one thing answers the question, what is everything? I think there's a fundamental disconnect in the definition of everything. Everything implies a number of things. In fact, all things collaborating together to create everything. 
And I think that's the answer. The answer is to stop looking for the single KPI, the single metric that will be the Nirvana-esque answer to all of your problems. It doesn't exist. If it were that easy, someone would have figured it out and would have become a quadrillionaire by selling it to everyone else and writing the book or giving the speech or whatever it may be. Our existence as humans is messy. It's complicated. We have good days. We have bad days. We have projects we're excited about. We have projects that we can't stand. We have days where we're eager to get out of bed and go to work. We have days where the last thing we want to do is get out of bed and go to work. We have days when we get along with our family. We have days when we wish we would have been born into a different family. There's nothing wrong with this. This is what it's like to be a human. And this is what it's been like to be a human since humans first crawled out of the primordial ooze and started walking the earth. I'm a big fan of reading old books. What I mean by that is books that are more than 500 years old. And what I find from reading those old books that have stood the test of time and those old writings is that the same things they struggled with then are things we're struggling with now. Do I matter? Do I care? What do I care about? Who do I love? What do I love? How do I experience love? What lights me up? What dims me down? What am I striving for? What am I running away from? All these things have been part of the human condition for millennia. Why we think that boiling it down to, well, how many likes did I get on that Facebook campaign? Or what's our conversion rate on the email funnel? Or what's our net promoter score for the quarter? I'm not saying any of those individual things are wrong or bad. What I am saying is that if you become laser focused on any one piece of data, I promise you, you are missing tens of thousands of relevant points of information that just, it, it, when we become myopic like that, we, we miss the whole story. And guess what? Our customers know it. Our employees mm -hmm. know it. When we're focused on an individual piece of data or even a data set, people pick up on that and they don't like it. They don't want to be thought of as a number and yet we're trying to turn them into a number or we're trying to track their behavior as a number. I think it makes more sense to let it be all of it. Speaking of numbers, the first 100 days, <laughs> you have developed a methodology to really onboarding experiences. And it's so important because we do know that it, you only get one chance to make a great first impression. So when it comes to customers, talk about that. What is something people can do to really make sure that customers stay, that they are loyal? What does that mean to you? Well, I think there's a couple of things. And I'd like to, if I may, talk a little bit, since we were just talking about data, talk about the data and the research, and then talk a little bit about the practical experience of being a human and how I hope for the listeners, it will reinforce the things I'm about to share from the data point of view. So when I was putting together my book, Never Lose a Customer Again, I looked at research from around the world. Companies that operated online and offline, small, medium, and large, product and service, domestic and international. And what I found is across all industries, somewhere between 20 and 70% of new customers will decide to stop doing business with you 
before the 100-day anniversary. 20 to 70%. In SaaS businesses, it was 20%. Banking, 32%. Auto mechanics, 68%. Restaurants, somewhere between 40 and 70%, depending on the type of cuisine that you served. Uh, Cell phone companies, 21%. These numbers were staggering. But what was scarier to me, Stacey, than those numbers was that the average business had no idea what their percentage was. They had no idea how many of their customers were leaving in the proverbial first five minutes after we got them in the door. They were literally running out the back door as quickly as we brought them in the front door. And as a result, we missed the opportunity to get additional sales from them. We missed the opportunity to increase our share of wallet with them. We missed the opportunity for referrals and for reviews and all the things that we want in our businesses because we haven't established the foundation of the relationship. Now, let's put the numbers aside and look at dating. What? Dating, Joey? Yes, dating in your personal life. So right now, if you're listening, you're either in a relationship or you've been in a relationship or you wish you were in a relationship. You're probably (laughs) in one of those three categories, okay? And here's the great thing about dating. In the beginning, everyone's putting their best foot forward. And it's exciting. It's fresh. It's new. You never know what's going to happen. There's, you feel the little angst and the little excitement and the eagerness and the butterflies in the stomach. But then as the relationship's going, gets going, and sometimes this happens in the first few weeks, sometimes it takes months, sometimes it's years, things don't seem as exciting. They seem more novel. They seem more routine. You're not exactly sure what's going to happen next, but it's not a good thing that you're not sure what's going to happen next. Now you're starting to not like that you don't know what's going to happen next. See, as humans, we're this interesting breed of cells in the sense that on one hand, we love the chase. We love the new. We love the fresh. We love the exciting. But on this other hand, we really can't stand any of that. We want the consistent. We want the stable. We want the normal. And so there's this dance back and forth between the two. I think the smartest businesses in the world are the ones that realize we need to be consistent in our execution of our promises and the aspects of our product or our service that we promised during the marketing and sales stage of the relationship. But we've got to intersperse those interactions with little moments of delight, little moments of unexpected joy, little moments of personal and emotional connection. And so when I think about the first 100 days, I think of a blend of a consistent way of onboarding a new customer that actually has planned moments of surprise and planned moments of experience built into it that create the kind of remarkable interactions that will get our customers talking. If we do that right, we get them past the first 100 days. The research also shows if we get them to day 101 and they're feeling ecstatic about the relationship, they're excited, they're pumped, they're feeling good. In the typical business, that customer will stay for five years. Mm. Five years. So I'm not asking you to sprint forever. I'm asking you to focus on the first 100 days of the relationship. And in doing so, lay a foundation, make the deposits in the karmic bank account that when things go wrong or when the relationship starts to get a little stale or when they start to feel like a number or you don't bring me flowers anymore, whatever it may be, the person still feels like they're invested in the connection to you. How much of it do you believe has to do with setting expectations because right now my team and I are working on developing documentation 
that every sales rep uses in the same way. And so much of it is about what you, Mr. or Ms. Customer, can expect from us. Is that what onboarding also means to you? I think it's absolutely a piece of it, Stacey. Absolutely. I think the challenge with most conversations around expectation setting is that most people's understanding of expectation setting comes with a boatload of baggage. What do I mean by that? Well, have you ever been in a relationship where someone said, I'd love to just do a little expectation setting and you were like, oh, yes, awesome. This is the part I was waiting for. I was waiting for you to tamp down my excitement. I was waiting for you to tell me what you're not gonna do. I was waiting for you to limit the Mm. thing that I was super excited about and dial it down. Most people don't feel that way. However, I do think it makes sense to be very clear and very specific in what we're planning to do. But we also need to recognize that most humans, even when we're being clear and specific, aren't going to actually be able to hear it. Mm. Wait a minute, Joey. How does that work? Well, I have two boys. I have a six-year-old and an eight-year-old. We have had dinner as a family many, many nights. Everybody sits down at the dinner table. And every night when we sit down at the dinner table, I wait to see what's going to happen. And ironically enough, and I say this lovingly of my two boys, about 40% of the time, the napkin goes onto the lap without being told. The other 60% of the time, even though I've set the expectation, I'm like, boys, <laughs> napkins, where do those go? Do they go on the table where they were set or did they go somewhere else? Oh, right, dad, they go on our laps. Yes, they go on our laps. Now, my hope is at some point in the future, I don't know when this is going to be, they will put the napkin on their lap every time without me asking. Now, I have two choices, Stacy. I can get angry that I set that expectation and they didn't follow it. I can get frustrated or I can get curious. And what I try to do is get curious. Why did you think differently? Why did you think tonight we wouldn't have napkins on our lap? One of my sons, uh, my youngest son said to me recently, he said, well, daddy, we're having pizza. I said, okay. He said, well, last time we had pizza, we didn't have to use napkins. And I'm thinking, when was this mythical last time of pizza? But clearly somewhere in his little brain, he registered that there was a time where he didn't have to use a napkin with pizza. And so he thought, well, maybe with all pizza, we don't have to use napkins. Moral of the story Mm -hmm. here is, I think expectation management is key, but I think we want to be really careful about how that's perceived by the listener. Are they perceiving it as, I'm helping to set your expectations so we can deliver remarkable to you and then kind of even exceed your expectations from time to time? Or are you coming at this from a, well, you know, our sales team screws this up all the time. So they're going to have to do a better job of setting expectations because when they get to our account reps, the account reps are angry that the salespeople promised too much. So now we're dialing it back. Lots of times in organizations, when we talk about sales teams setting proper expectations, it's because someone in the organization feels the sales team has been failing at this. So Mm -hmm. it, again, I think it's contextual. A hundred percent. And what I had in my head as I was saying that, because you really, you made it much clearer. To me, a lot of times in onboarding, a customer doesn't know where do they go for help And that's one of the components in my mind that you've got to make it clear. Don't make them go on this wild goose chase 
on who's going to help them with what. So that's part of the onboarding experience. It's very clear. But yes, you're right. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Stacey. Here's the other thing, though. I think lots of times we expect a first-time customer to remember when we tell them, okay, and if it's a technical support problem, you're going to want to call this number and talk to this person. But if it's about your account, you're going to want to talk to this person in this number. Now, if it's an accounting issue, you're going to want to talk to this other person about this other number. And if it's about an opportunity to increase the amount of money we get to you, then make sure you talk to one of our salespeople because we want to close you right away. And it's like, wait a second. There's a famous researcher that came up with this concept of Dunbar's number. And in Dunbar's number, the theory is that a human brain can hold about 150 relationships, relationships with about 150 people. I need only go on to the LinkedIn profile or the Facebook page or the Instagram page of anybody listening to the show. And I'm almost guaranteed to find more than 150 quote unquote friends that you're connected to, acquaintances, connections, whatever it may be. Those are just the people that you've connected with on social media. That doesn't necessarily include your spouse, significant other, your family, you know, and maybe they're connected on some of the profiles, but not some of the others. And then if I take your LinkedIn profile and your Facebook profile and your Instagram profile, the Venn diagram of where they overall lap, we have a lot more than 150 people because we have different people in different channels. It's one thing if we're picking the channel. It's something completely different when we're forcing the customer to succumb Mm -hmm. to our channel definitions. I think the best organizations in the world are the ones where every employee knows who the right person is to handle the problem, but is also empowered to solve north of 90% of the problems themselves. If somebody's calling into the organization and they just want to change their address, I'd like to think that anyone who can access the CRM should have the power to update their address instead of, well, you're going to have to talk to Sally in in customer (laughs) relations. Hang on. Well, let me see. She's not available. Leave a message and maybe she'll call you back or maybe not. Or maybe if you go out and fill out a form on our way and we're telling him to go all these different ways and the customer's like, just meet me where I'm at. I just want to tell you my address so you can send me more stuff so I can keep doing business with you. Often it's that simple. And I know that I'm being a little dramatic in the examples I'm giving, but I'd be willing to bet that north of 60% of the calls or the emails or the inquiries that anyone who's listening organization gets could be solved with some better FAQs, some better processes, some cleaner expectation setting, some increased convenience and reduction of friction, some cross-training of employees, some of these things that just focusing on making it easier and faster and more convenient would solve a lot of these problems. One of my favorite things, Stacey, to do when I start working with an organization is I get the team all in the room. And invariably, I have to tell the leadership, like, hey, I might have to kick you out of the room. This might turn into something where I have to ask you to go, depending on how the team reacts. And what I'll do is I'll go around and I'll say, what are the three biggest problems our customers have? Write them down on a sheet of paper and hand them in. Everybody writes them down and hands them in. And then I read through them in front of the entire room. And what I found is, regardless of how many people are in the room, the trends become very obvious very fast. Everybody knows what the issues are. Nobody wants to fix them. I think there's an opportunity there. That goes back to the silos we talked about. And that goes back to who owns what and alignment. 
and, and, and. Well, we are close to the end and I wish, I, I wish that this went slower, but such good information. I want to conclude with two final questions I ask everyone that is really, really the uh, summary here. So one is, if I had all of the leaders, brand leaders, CEOs, entrepreneurs in my room right now, what is the key takeaway, that one thing you want them to know? If you invest in creating a remarkable experience in the first 100 days of the relationship with the customer, you can have a customer for life. You've got to be willing to lay the foundation. You've got to be willing to run an effective onboarding program that is consistent, that delivers a remarkable experience, that isn't contingent on, well, if Frank's onboarding you, you're in trouble. But if you get Jan, she'll do a great job. Or, you know, well, hopefully your salesperson was Maria because she does a really good job of setting expectation. But if your salesperson was Alfonso, you're in big trouble, whatever it may be. No, we need to deliver consistent experiences across those first 100 days to get the kind of long-term relationships we want. And same applies with employees. It does. And last question, if you could go back in time to your younger 20-year-old self, what, based on what you know now that you didn't know then, what would you tell younger Joey? I think I would tell younger Joey that the road is much longer than you think. I think one of the challenges of being in our 20s, and and I realize this is a a sweeping generalization, so if this doesn't apply to you, I apologize for lumping you, any of you into this sweeping generalization I'm about to make. But I think as we start our careers and we maybe leave home or we leave school and we kind of get out, quote unquote, into the real world a little more, we have this thought that it's got to be right from the beginning. I've got to get the right job, the right degree. I've got to get the right position, the right salary, work at the right company. My career has been incredibly eclectic. I would not have known this at 20. At 20, I didn't know that at 48, I could say that I worked in the White House, in the Office of Counsel to the President. I worked for the United States Secret Service. I worked for the Central Intelligence Agency. I taught at the postgraduate level in a business program as well as in a law program. Uh, I defended alleged criminals in court. I took acting courses and acting programs and taught young people how to act. I ran a division of a promotional products company. I ran an ad agency. I gave speeches on stages all over the world. If you would have told me at 20 that the next 20 years are going to include all of those things, I would have said, oh my gosh, can you not hold down a job? What is the issue? Why are you all over the place here? The reality is if the decisions you're making at 20 are still the things you're known for at 40 or at 60, I think you've missed an opportunity. I think you've Mm. missed an opportunity to explore more, to try more, to experience more. I would posit that any one or two years of our lives, we have the ability to make the wrong choice. We have the ability to get into the wrong relationship, say yes to the wrong employer, take the wrong position. It's not the death knell on your career if you learn from it. 
if you turn it into an opportunity to say, okay, I tried that. I decided that's not what I want to do. So now I'm going to go try something different. All of the jobs I've had that I listed off there, I've really enjoyed. And the reason I left every single one of those jobs is I found something else that I enjoyed more. It's not that I was running away from any of those positions. I was running towards the next position. And so that's the advice I would give my 20-year-old self. Don't be afraid to run towards the next position and keep trying new things. And cut your hair. (laughs) Well, let's put it this way. Have hair of varying lengths (laughs) over the course of that time period because you'll learn a lot of fun things along the way. Yes, I'm going to have to have you back on my show because I want to hear all about the experiences with the different hairstyles and also customer experience in the legal world. Absolutely, right? yeah. One, one of the people ask me all the time, they're like, Joey, how, what is that? There must be some time. I mean, did you just have crazy, like, did you completely change your thought? And I'm like, no, here's the thing. It's much easier to see it in hindsight. There is a thread that connects all of those careers and all of those positions. And here's the thread, which I think maybe ties up our conversation nicely. In each one of those positions, the way you excelled, the way you did well, was to have a keen understanding of the human condition. Why do we do the things that we do? And what can we do to convince, persuade, cajole, you know, uh, get people to move in the direction that we would like them to move in? And whether that was getting a jury to find my client not guilty or getting an asset to tell something to our country that we needed to know that they didn't want to share or getting a student to do a homework assignment that they didn't want to do, or getting a consumer who's a prospect to buy a new product that's being offered in an ad, or getting an audience member to listen to this crazy keynote for an hour and go back and change the way they think about their business for the next 30, 40, 50 years. It's all the same thing. What is the human condition? Why do people do the things they do? And what can we do to help them to see a different way of doing it? So good, so meaningful. Well, people are going to absolutely want to find you and I'm going to put that in the show notes, but what is, where do you hang out? Where's the best place? Yeah, the best place to find me actually is on my website. It's joeycoleman.com. That's J-O-E-Y, like a five-year-old or a baby kangaroo that you know, Joey. Coleman, C-O-L-E-M-A-N, like the camping equipment, but no relation. joeycoleman.com. If you are going to try to connect on social media, LinkedIn is really the only place where I have any semblance of activity. And it's minimal to say the least. I know Dan Gingas has been a guest on your show in the past. Dan is my co-host on uh, the Experience This podcast our show that we have together. Dan is the social media maven of the family. I'm the one who just kind of lurks and or occasionally does a post. But yeah, come over to joeycoleman.com. There's videos there. There's information about the book. And hopefully folks have uh, been intrigued to think a little bit differently about the kind of experiences they create in the first 100 days and beyond. Absolutely. You're amazing. And thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thanks, Stacey. And thanks to everybody for listening. Really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you will apply the lesson shared and also requesting if you would leave a review on Apple, it would mean a lot. Head over to doingcxright.com to learn more ways to connect with me and improve your CX. Until next time, I'm Stacey Sherman, Doing CX Right. <laughs>